If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. As you know, we've been in the Gospel according to Mark uh, for a couple of months, uh, but took a break for Advent and then this series now uh, on how Jesus Christ runs His church. And uh, we're going to get back to Mark in a few weeks, but we're going to skip ahead, as it were, to Mark chapter 10. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are people in great need. We are in need of you to speak to us. And so indeed, Father, would you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Father, would you um, enable us to understand, appreciate, um, and apply your word to our lives, giving glory to you and doing much good to our neighbor. Father, enable us to see and embrace the truth before us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been saying that the subject of church government is not a trivial thing. It's not insignificant. It's highly relevant and vital. It's in many ways a matter of life and death for the ministry of a church. Because what a church does, its ministry in other words, and how a church is led its government cannot be separated. And as I hope you've been seeing by now, Presbyterian church government is not only the most biblically consistent form of church government, but it's also practical. It provides an orienting framework for the life and ministry of the church. And in particular, it helps to protect the church from anarchy on the one hand, where anything goes, to tyranny on the other, where just one man or one group's uh, word goes. Jesus Christ, we've been seeing, is the head, the king and the ruler of his church. And we saw that from Isaiah 9 and Colossians 1. And Jesus in giving his, the risen Jesus in giving his disciples that, that call and that commission reminded them that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. With that we should just remind ourselves that what goes without saying should be said. Jesus is the boss. He's in charge. He calls the shots. And so our series is, in a word, how Jesus Christ runs his church, what church government is and why it matters. Now, interestingly, in describing his rule as king, Jesus describes himself as a shepherd and as a servant. Because Jesus the King provides good gifts to his church, and he provides both shepherds or elders and servants or deacons for his church. And those are good gifts that we should look for the, to the Lord to provide, and indeed he does provide them in his time. And so we're looking uh, these weeks at Jesus Christ and the officers of the church, elders and deacons, under shepherds and servants of the church, because the officers of the church together represent the fullness of Jesus' ministry to us, both in his rule and in his service. Last week, we took a look at how to recognize elders and deacons, and we looked at the characteristics from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've seen already Jesus, our shepherd, and from there we saw the person and work of the elder, the shepherd, his call, 
his manner, his reward. Well, today we're going to look at Jesus, our servant. And next week we're going to look at the person and work of the deacon or the person and work of the servant. Not too long ago, I was in the Hallmark um, uh, store um, looking for some uh, very sadly expensive cards. I think I'm convinced now just to, to make my own. But, um, you know, they've got cards for every occasion, don't they? And you keep walking toward the back and, and the occasions get smaller and smaller and more specific and more specific. And I found a small section entitled, believe it or not, In the Lord's Service. In the Lord's Service, um, mainly geared toward people in, as it were, full-time vocational ministry. And yet, aren't we all in the Lord's service, called to serve? Joshua, toward the end, we hear these words, As for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. And Paul writes in the first letter to the Thessalonians about the report that he'd heard of how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, today, for the next few minutes, we're going to consider being in the Lord's service from another angle. That being being served by the Lord. For in Mark 10, 45, the first part of the verse, Jesus makes an astounding statement. Join with me as I read Mark 10, 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now on either side of this statement that Jesus came to serve, Jesus tells us two other things that he came to do that are related to him coming to serve. He came to teach and he came to die. Let's first explore the idea that Jesus came to teach. And we see that in verses 35 through 44. 
The context here in Mark is that Jesus has just spoken of his death for the third time. We see that in verses 32 through 34. Earlier it was in chapter 8, verse 31, and again in 9, 31. And here come James and John making a request. Look at verse 35 again with me. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We'll see that James and John want to be great. They ask for glory. Jesus responds in the next few verses and basically says, Boys, you don't know what you're talking about. The other ten become indignant at James and John. We read in verse 41. And interestingly, we might be tempted that the other ten are the, are the good guys and they realize that James and John um, are doing something wrong when most commentators probably are, are correct in saying, you know, no, no, those ten just wanted on the action as well. And they were bummed that James and John asked before they asked. They were indignant. Jesus earlier in Mark chapter 9 verse 50 said to be at peace with one another and his own disciples are not at peace with themselves. So Jesus now uses this occasion to teach his disciples, his learners, what discipleship is and what discipleship is not. First, what discipleship is not, we see in verse 42. Because here Jesus contrasts greatness in the world with greatness in the kingdom of God. In the world, greatness equals power and authority to elevate yourself and to put down others. But, Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, greatness means becoming a servant and a slave whose life and ministry will be shaped by the cross that awaits Jesus. Indeed, service in the kingdom of God is true life in the Christian counterculture. Years ago, we did a series from the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe the title was Life in the Christian Counterculture. My friends, if you want to be countercultural radicals and rebels today, in 2016, if you really want to go against the grain to swim upstream to not do what everyone else is doing? Sit at the feet of Jesus. Learn from Him. The kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this world. True greatness in this kingdom is measured by our service and it's seen not how high we have climbed the ladder, but rather how far down the ladder we have climbed and are prepared to climb for the sake of others. Indeed, the gospel is the gospel of downward mobility, as we saw in last week's Something to Think About quote. Growing downward, pursuing holiness is growing downward. Now, in view of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, ask yourself this question right now. As you look back over this past week, when did you think or speak, or act differently from the world, and you recognize that you were doing this because you are living by a different set of values. 
Or probably an easier question to answer is this. Were you last week indistinguishable from the world? Jesus is not just a teacher. He didn't just speak words. He also performed deeds. And in talking about being a servant, he doesn't just say, do as I say. Rather, he says, do as I do. For Jesus came to serve. Now, we know that Jesus came to do a lot of things. He came to preach. He came to heal. In John 10.10, he says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Look with me again at verse 45, because this is where we're going to be for the next few minutes. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came. In other words, Jesus existed before he was born on earth. And he came not to be served. And this assumes that he had the right to be served because who he is. But he did not exercise that right as we heard in Philippians chapter 2. He gave up that right. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. Jesus says he came not to be served but to serve. My friends, here is the reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank. When was the great reversal made? When Jesus came. Because everything was turned upside down. The kingdom of the world versus the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus was announcing and bringing with him. Now this, these few words in this verse presuppose a truth of staggering proportions. That Jesus is God. And that Jesus humbled himself. My friends, those of you that keep up with, as it were, news in the evangelical world, know that there's a debate out there with this question. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? And amazingly, you even have to have that kind of debate and discussion. My friends, whatever God it is that Muslims worship, it's not a God who humbled himself. For that to a Muslim would be blasphemy. And yet for the Christian who's following the true and living God, we have no hope without it. Jesus came to serve. Think about a couple of examples with me. In Luke 10, Martha was distracted by her serving and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. What? Being served by Jesus, as he spoke the words of truth to her. In John 13, we read of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. His disciples observed this rather strange action on the part of their, um, their rabbi, their teacher, and they didn't understand until later. Well, all of these incidences of Jesus serving are preludes and pointers to his ultimate service. For in coming to serve, the end of verse 45 makes it clear. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to give his life. 
to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom, Old Testament language of liberation from captivity through a payment. And the assumption, of course, is we are in captivity and bondage. And we, it shows us how Jesus sees our spiritual condition and he pays the price or pays the penalty through his life and death. And notice it's a ransom for, in the stead of, in the place of. There's an exchange and a substitution seen here. For who? For many. For many. Probably a direct reference back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. He bore the sin of many. All kinds of people. And in other places, the word many could be thought of as the community. The many. The community. All kinds of people. If you ever want to memorize a verse, memorize Mark 10, 45. It's a key verse because here you see Jesus, his themes as king and servant, as redeemer and ransom. Who he is and why he came. And we see the death of Jesus. It secures us as well as it shapes discipleship. Jesus' death, of course, is senseless unless we realize we are hopelessly and truly lost, held in the grip of sin and death, unless, unless. So we've seen Jesus came to teach about serving. Indeed, the Christian life is about serving. We considered how he didn't come to just teach about service, though he came to serve and he did serve. And we've recognized that in his coming to serve, his greatest act of service was to give his life as a substitute in the place of and as a sacrifice on behalf of his people. And children, this is a good time to, when you think about the ministry of Jesus, think about he's our substitute and he's our Sacrifice, two S words, in our place and on our behalf. So in a life where we are called to serve the living and true God and where we are called to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus, what on earth should we do with this knowledge that Jesus is our servant? In other words, what do we mean when we say Jesus is our servant? Well, I think here are at least two things we should think about. First, Christianity in general. Jesus, our servant, declares to us and reminds us that before we can serve Jesus, we have to be served by Jesus. Let me say that again. Before you and I can go out there and serve Jesus, we have to first be served by Jesus. And my friends, that is where the rub is. Because it requires our death. Death to our pride. Death to the belief that we can make ourselves right with God. Death to the conviction that I don't accept charity. 
Brothers and sisters, here is the scandal of the gospel. You know, we, 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 we talk about uh, so-and-so wanting a free lunch. I don't know. If I got to the point where I had to accept a free lunch, I would have had to first swallow my pride before I can swallow the free lunch, right? And if anything, the gospel is charity. You acknowledge you are broke and you are poor and you have nothing. Coming to faith in Christ is is declaring spiritual bankruptcy. You know, every other organization out there in the world says, you come in when you've got something that we need. The church, on the other hand, says come in when you realize you don't have anything of value. A Christian is, at the most basic definition, someone who has been served by Jesus through his obedient life and his sin-atoning death, through his sin and death-destroying resurrection and his promised return. So that's Christianity in general. Well, how about church government in particular? Jesus, our servant, declares to us and reminds us of the fullness of Jesus' ministry to us. As king, he not only rules us, but as king, he serves us. And we see that ministry displayed through the work of the elder or the shepherd and the deacon or the servant. Finally, a question. Why do we have servants? Put differently, Why would you hire a servant? Now, I think most of us would answer this question by saying we'd love to have servants because they would do for us the things that we don't want to do. In other words, we could do it, we just don't want to do it. Um, Every now and then I find myself watching a PBS masterpiece theater episode, and I'll watch uh, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Upstairs, Downstairs, but most recently, Downton Abbey. And when you watch Downton Abbey, you see cooks and housekeepers and groundskeepers and butlers and chauffeurs busy taking care of the house and grounds, taking care of the high society. But unlike these servants that we see on Downton Abbey, Jesus is the servant who does for us not what we don't want to do, but rather what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus does for his people what they cannot do for themselves. He does for us what we not only cannot do now, but we, what we can never do. He saves us because we cannot save ourselves. He, Jesus, lives a life of perfect obedience. Who of us can do that? We try. We should try. By God's grace, we are dying to sin and living to righteousness. But who of us can actually live a perfect life of obedience? And what does Jesus do? He not only lives for us, but he dies for us in our place. We are so sinful that Jesus had to die. There's no other way. And yet in Christ, 
Christians realize more and more that they are so loved and accepted and cherished that Jesus not only had to die, but Jesus, my friends, was glad to die. Only a Christian who knows the depth of their own sin can ever come to that conclusion. Well, let's go back to the Hallmark store for a moment. Among other things, a Christian is someone who, without question, is in the Lord's service. First and foremost, by being someone who has been and who still is being served by Jesus. My friends, when you realize and find yourself being served by this servant, you would not dare say anything along these lines. I want you to do whatever I want you to do for me. Whatever I ask you. No, my friends, you say something along these lines. All I am and all I have is yours. Use me for your glory and for the good of your people. Indeed, it is amazing love. How can it be? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that coming to faith in Christ requires the death of our faith in ourselves. Father, we are wired from the beginning to figure out what we can do to get right with you, what we can do to save ourselves, what we can do to to get to this unending life that is life as it has been originally designed. But, oh, Father, you indeed have shown us another way, a way that is indeed the way, the truth, and the life through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help all of us see that before we hear the call to go out and serve Jesus, to serve the church, we would first hear the call to be served by Jesus. And, oh, Father, that is humbling. That is absolutely humbling. But, Father, we know that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. And so let us all individually and together humble ourselves before the Lord. And in due time, you will lift us up. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good response today echoes.